Well, we are in week three of a four-week series called Living Under the Reign of a King. Uh, Jeff, our senior pastor, will be back soon, but not yet. So hang in there. If you were here two weeks ago, uh, as a brief recap, you know that we were in 1 Samuel 8 and 12. And we looked at the account of the prophet and judge Samuel anointing King Saul over Israel. The people of Israel demanded to be ruled by a king, and so Saul was installed. And as we looked at that, we, we observed Israel and some of their decisions, and we learned that um, we should not covetously compare ourselves with our neighbors. We saw that we shouldn't presume on our own wisdom. And ultimately, we saw that that story stood for the proposition that it is uh, easier for us to trust in an imperfect king we can see than a perfect king we cannot. The passage called us to worship God with our whole heart and to consider what great things he's done for us. A better king is coming. And then last week, we looked at 1 Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath. We talked about change blindness and the need to be able to see things more clearly. We looked at how God provides even through flawed leaders and how as a people we are called to be prayerfully critical of policy but not hateful critics of the people who lead us. And the call in that passage is to let our allegiance be singular. The story pointed us to a truer and better David, Jesus, and reminded us again that a better king is coming. Two weeks ago, I mentioned uh, as an illustration to, to, to demonstrate the point that we shouldn't presume on our own wisdom, I talked about this skunk hat that I wanted as a little kid, got talked out of it. Um, and then that week, someone mailed me a skunk hat uh, via Amazon. And then, so last week, I, I told you that, and then I mentioned, I, sort of jokingly, hey, there's this other thing when I was 11 I wanted, and it was a 2017 Ford F-150. And, uh, and on Tuesday, no lie, at my house, a 2017 Ford F-150, but it fit inside of a matchbox. And so I, it came with a note, and it said, remember, when you make specific requests, be very specific. And uh, so lesson learned, point well taken. If last week was a familiar story in David and Goliath, probably this week's passage is not going to be familiar to a lot of folks. This is not a story that ends up in a lot of children's Bibles. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 9 today, the story of David and Mephibosheth. This story uh, is going to show us not only how to live under the reign of a king, but actually how to live like a king. I'd like to suggest that this story teaches us how to live like a king, but like many things in the Bible, it's not going to teach us to do it in a way that we would expect. Uh, if you've ever seen uh, a picture of or visited the, the Palace of Versailles in France, kind of a prototypical example of a European kingly estate, and that's kind of how the world tends to measure kingly living, by how much gilded gold leaf we can fit into our palatial home, how many domestic helpers we can employ, or how many exec exclusive clubs we could get into. But the marks of kingly living we see in this passage are quite a bit different than that. So to kind of set the table and give you a little background on this story, if you were to read 1 Samuel 19 through 21 and 2 Samuel 4, you would learn uh, kind of the, the background to our, our passage today. So let me just give it to you briefly. Recall that Saul was the king of Israel, anointed and installed by Samuel. So Saul is the king. 
Saul has a son named Jonathan, and Jonathan has a son named Mephibosheth. So those are, that's kind of the, the primary character line here. Uh, Saul begins to hate David because David had defeated Goliath. David began to win the hearts and minds of the people of Israel, and Saul eventually seeks to kill David. Now, despite their conflict that's primarily one-sided, David becomes best friends with Jonathan, the son of Saul, the king who's trying to kill David. The Bible gives us a beautiful picture of male friendship as between Jonathan and David. And so Jonathan speaks to his best friend, David. He says, David, I know that my father's reign is coming to an end. And when it does, I want you to promise me, make a covenant with me that you will be gracious to our family and you will not kill off all of our descendants. Um, see, in the ancient Near East, it would be very common practice that when there was a regime change, one king was deposed and another took his place. The new king, to ensure that there would not be a contested throne, would kill off the descendants of the, the former regime. And so even if it was a small child, like in our story today, uh, Mephibosheth, five years old, as the story begins, the king would even kill the children because though they don't pose a, a risk Today, in 15 or 20 years, they're going to be capable of making a claim on the throne and staging a coup. So Jonathan says, David, promise me you won't do this. And David says, out of my love for you, I promise you I won't. I will show kindness to you. And the story progresses. Saul and Jonathan, father and son, fighting shoulder to shoulder at Mount Gilboa against the Philistines, the sworn enemies of Israel. And they are both slain. And so now as the Philistines are overrunning the camp, the people of Israel panic and they begin to flee before the Philistines. And a nurse who's responsible for Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, grandson of Saul, picks him up and begins to run with him. And in her haste, she drops him. His feet are broken beyond repair. And so he lives the rest of his life as a cripple, the passage says. And so time is going to go on from this point uh, our passage is going to pick up years later as Mephibosheth is an adult. Uh, in, the, in the interim, David has had great success. The hand of the Lord has been upon him. He's gained fame amongst the nations and he's been enjoying continual victory. And so as we look at this passage, again, we're just going to make two observations from the passage about how to live under the reign of a king or in this instance, even how to live like a king. And then we're going to get to the main point of the story. Why is this passage in the Bible? What does God primarily want to teach us through this, remembering that every story whispers his name. Every story points us to Jesus. So we're going to pick up in 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. An initial observation is we're going to see that David seeks an opportunity to show kindness. He seeks an opportunity to show kindness. Verse 1, and David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. So what's happening is David has kind of come into the neighborhood and said, uh, hey, I, I had made this covenant with Jonathan, and I want to ask, is there anyone left from Saul's household that I can fulfill my covenant to Jonathan and show kindness? And so they go, you know what? Yeah, there's a guy named Ziba who used to be a servant in Saul's house. Let's get him over here. He'll know if anybody's left. And so Ziba comes running over, and Ziba, uh, in, in, in uh, verse 2... Uh, we see Ziba comes over and then David says to him, are you Ziba? He says, yes, I am. Verse three, the king says, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Now, what's interesting about this 
is how intently David is seeking out Mephibosheth. Ziba's going to go on to tell him, yes, there is someone remaining. It's Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. But because Mephibosheth understands the culture of the ancient Near East, in his mind, if David's coming back into the neighborhood and asking if anyone's left in the household of Saul, he presumes that David's coming to put them to death, to ensure an uncontested throne. And so Mephibosheth has likely been living in hiding. He's maybe taken on an assumed name. He is not wanting to be found by David. And so David is actually actively seeking him out. And in Genesis 3, we actually see a prototype of this pattern of uh, Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. And then God comes walking into the garden. It says that they run and hide from God. And so what we see is just like Mephibosheth is running and hiding from David in a sense, we too, from Genesis, from the fall, from our first parents, Adam and Eve, have been running and hiding from God. We move away from God, and yet he moves towards us, just as David did toward Mephibosheth. This has been the pattern from the beginning. Romans 3, the Apostle Paul is writing, and he actually quotes David, the, the King David in our story, from one of the Psalms that he wrote, where it says, None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands no one seeks for God. No one seeks after God. And yet, just like in the garden, God pursues man. So that in 1 John 4 we read that in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you ever have seen the, uh, the fresco that Michelangelo painted in the Sistine Chapel, there's that iconic image of, of God and man reaching towards each other, fingers almost touching. If, if you can imagine this, not as a static image, but as a video, as an image in motion, all the movement in that picture would be on God's side. God, like David, is the pursuer of man. This is the pattern and prerogative of God. Jesus says in Mark 2 that he came, not for the healthy, but for the sick. He was the pursuer and maybe this morning, maybe you recognize a desire in your heart to know God. Maybe God feels distant. Maybe you sense an inclination to be in a relationship with God. Maybe you actually don't even know what that phrase means exactly. Maybe you don't know too much about the Bible. You haven't been in church. You're exploring the Christian faith. But you sense an inclination to be in a relationship with God, to, be, uh, to, to actually know and be in communication with and, and be cared for uh, by this God that the Bible talks about, but maybe that seems unattainable to you. You just, you don't really know how to get there. If this morning, if you sense any level of resistance with respect to God, know that any resistance that exists is on your side, not God's. He overcomes our resistance by the power of his spirit at work in our hearts. We don't have to overcome his resistance towards us. Jesus has done all that's required to deal with any resistance God has towards us due to our sin so that God is actively pursuing us, eagerly wanting to be in a relationship with us. I got to tell you, even this morning, just after kind of a hard weekend at home, uh, messing up a lot, just feeling down, sensing a lot of shame, sensing resistance in my own heart with respect to God, having the sense that, man, how, how can I come up here and read the scriptures publicly? How can I come up here and try to preach a sermon when I know the depths of sin in my own heart, to have me remind myself that any resistance I feel with respect to God is on my side, not his. He's eager to embrace me as a son. He's the pursuer of me. I don't have to, I don't have to be morally observant or 
hyper-religious to win God's favor. He is the pursuer of us. And Jesus displays this pattern of God's pursuit in man most vividly in the incarnation. God loves us through the incarnation, not from afar, but close up. Now, could God have loved us and saved us without the incarnation? Could he have rescued us without ever sending Jesus to earth to take on flesh and live amongst us? Well, presumably he could have. He's God. He's all-powerful. That doesn't seem to be outside of the scope of possibility, but that's not how he chose to do it. So that in Philippians 2, we see that Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but through humility descended from the heavens, took on flesh, dwelt amongst us. What what a terribly uncomfortable, inconvenient, sacrificial decision that was for Jesus to defer to the Father and for the Father to be willing to send his Son to accomplish our salvation that way. It's hard to imagine anything more uncomfortable than God rending the heavens, taking on flesh, ultimately being flogged by sinful men, dragged up a hill and hung out on a tree to die. And yet that's how he did it. Uh, Got four young kids in my house, as I've mentioned. And a couple years ago, we got a great present from our grandparents. They gave us a trampoline. So we've got this trampoline in our backyard. Kids love to jump on the trampoline. Uh, Now, we're not from Houston. We're not native to Houston. So after four years, we're still trying to get used to the weather here, as Joe referred to. And the kids love to jump on the trampoline all summer long. And they especially love it when we come out and jump on the trampoline with them. So they'll they'll say, Daddy, will you come jump on the trampoline with us? And during these dog days of summer, what I like to do is I like to participate uh, from inside the house and watch them jump on the trampoline through the glass so I can have the air conditioning. Um, And that's okay, right? That's an okay way to love our kids, and I can watch them and enjoy and and engage with them. But they experience my love and participation most profoundly, most intimately, when I'm willing to leave the air conditioning and go out and endure the humidity and the mosquitoes and be covered in pine straw and sweat right along with them. That is a very, very dim picture of the incarnation. God willing to come and dwell amongst us and suffer with us and experience life with us and relate to us in every way to demonstrate his love for us, his nearness to us. And we follow Jesus, therefore, by incarnating the love and kindness of God as he did towards us. In fact, the Hebrew word that that's used in this passage when, when David says, is there anyone left in Saul's household that I can show the kindness of God to him? That word kindness is the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word hesed. And there's not a direct translation into English, but it means something like loving kindness. It connotes grace and loyalty and mercy and even covenant. It displays the deep, rich, holistic, pervasive love of God. And so... That's what we attempt to do in being like David, to demonstrate the hesed, the loving kindness of God, seeking out an opportunity. I love it at Wood's Edge how we do this corporately and programmatically. If you've been here any time, you've probably heard this program called Outside the Walls mentioned. And what I love about Outside the Walls, which basically is 50% of all donations to the church, any unrestricted, undesignated giving, ends up going outside the walls of Wood's Edge to ministries and missionaries and people in need who aren't part of this immediate community. And I love the self-limiting principle of that. It keeps us as a church from just scaling our infrastructure and comfort to match the level of affluence in our community. And in fact, it reminds me of what Jesus said when he said that we should love our neighbor as ourself. If you were to take that phrase and translate it into an algebraic equation, it might end up looking something like taking half of what we have and sharing it with our neighbor so that we could love them 
as we love ourselves. So I love that we do that corporately as a church at Wood's Edge. But we also have to do it personally. We have to seek out an opportunity to show kindness of God, not just as a church organization or, or community, but personally. So the question then, who has God placed on the periphery of your life that he wants you to seek out and show kindness to? Who's God placed in the periphery of your life, in the margins of your life? And their need may not be readily apparent to you, but God wants you to seek out an opportunity to show his kindness to them. It's very easy for us to claim ignorance of need. It would have been very easy for David to say, well, man, I was willing to show the kindness of God, but I didn't even know Mephibosheth existed. I didn't know he was still alive. How was I to know? The most, the most convenient and the easiest thing to do would just to be to remain ignorant. But he takes a risk and, acts a, and asks a very dangerous question. Isn't there anyone left that I can show the kindness of God to him? There was an op-ed in the Washington Post a couple weeks ago by Jackson Deal. It was titled, No One is Paying Attention to the Worst Humanitarian Crisis Since World War II. I referenced this briefly a couple weeks ago. And in the article, it says it's shocking that so little heed is being paid to what the UN says is the worst humanitarian crisis since 1945. The danger that about 20 million people in four countries will suffer famine in the coming months and that hundreds of thousands of children will starve to death. Not heard of this? That's the problem. And then the CEO of Save the Children goes on to say, we can't seem to get anyone's attention to what's going on here. And Deal posits that perhaps one of the reasons that globally we're so blind to this monumental reality that's happening in East Africa is because our news cycle and our media coverage is so saturated with political ongoings and nonsense. What has so-and-so tweeted this week about Russia? What's happening with FBI investigations here and there? What's going on with healthcare in this or that country? And those things are not unimportant things, but but we've been so saturated with attention on those things that we've missed over 20 million people facing imminent famine and starvation. And so the question, who is it in the periphery of your life that God wants you to seek out an opportunity to show kindness to? Who are the unseen folks in your community and in your world who need to receive the kindness of God? Maybe it's a shut-in elderly neighbor near where you live. Maybe it's a chronically homeless person on your commute to work that you see every day. Or maybe you've never seen because you've never looked. Maybe you're a teacher and it's a student in your class who easily blends into the crowd, if not engaged. And it's someone asking them what's going on in their life and what their needs are. Maybe, maybe it's a single mom that you know. Maybe it's one of the 40,000 foster care children in our state right now. Maybe it's someone in East Africa facing imminent famine. To live like a king, or at least to live like a good king, we need to seek out opportunity like David to demonstrate the kindness of God. The company I work for, a great company, it's actually owned by a family that's, that's here at Woods Edge, part of the, the Woods Edge community. Uh, love the family, love the company. One of the things that they do that I think is remarkable is they set aside about $75,000 a year as a benevolence fund for employees. Not for the employees to use for their needs, but rather employees have access to so that they can meet needs in the community. So if I am downtown for a meeting and I come across someone who's homeless and hungry, I'm able to buy them lunch and then expense it to the company. 
It's an incredible program. And it's not like the family is sitting here going, man, we've got these $75,000 and we just don't know what to do with it. We can't think of any good use for this money. What should, well, I guess we'll just give it to the employees and they can give it away. They're connected to plenty of good charities that they could donate it to that would do great things with it. I'm sure that they have plenty of vacation spots that they would love to go to. The reason they do this is to encourage and empower employees at this company to learn the critical truth that honoring God in our lives includes seeking out opportunities to show the kindness of God to people. Robert Lupton in, in his book, Toxic Charity, makes the statement that compassion is the reflection of the divine, the in-person reassurance that there is care in our universe. When we seek out opportunities to show the kindness of God for people, we are providing an in-person reminder to people that there is care in the universe and that his name is Jesus. So David first seeks out an opportunity to show kindness. And then he goes beyond that. He actually makes a place at his table. He provides a place at his table for Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. We'll pick up in verse 7. And David said to him, Mephibosheth, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And Mephibosheth paid homage to David and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Mephibosheth knows how this usually goes. He knows that he has no value to add to David's life. Verse 11. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. You can imagine what life would have been like for Mephibosheth in this time. He's living in an agrarian culture and he's lame in his feet. He can't do the manual labor that would require for him to care for his family, for his son. He's, he may be living under assumed name. He's in hiding, hoping that David will not find him. He's struggling and poor. And all of a sudden, in an instant, he goes from being a presumed enemy of the king, living in poverty, to being a friend of the king. David gives Mephibosheth an inheritance of Saul's land, which at this point would have rightfully been David's. So he puts him back in the position that he would have been in. He gives him a seat at the king's table, allowing him to sit under the king's banner, which means he has the king's protection. Mephibosheth is effectively extended all the rights and privileges of a son of the king. In the same way that David does this for a fallen and broken Mephibosheth, God does this for a fallen and broken humanity. We see in Romans 8, language of adoption. We've been adopted as sons and daughters. We've been given an inheritance as co-heirs with Christ. We see it in Ephesians 1 as well. In Jesus, God's son was treated like a sinner so that we sinners could be treated like sons. That's what's happening in this passage. Now, if we receive that news that God has treated us in the same way that David has treated Mephibosheth, if we receive that news and we're not moved by it, if our hearts are unaffected by that, then we're missing something. It means the penny hasn't yet fully dropped for us. We should be floored by this. Mephibosheth adds no value to David's life. This story is all about a king's promise and love towards a fallen and broken citizen. Now, when we seek out an opportunity to show the kindness of God and those needs move from our periphery to center focus, we become aware of them. We have to ask the next question. How big will we allow our table to be? 
How big are we going to allow our table to be? It says that David made a place for Mephibosheth at his table. He made space for him to show him the kindness of God. Several years ago, my family, we moved into a home that had a dining room. We had never had a dining room before. So we didn't have a dining room table. And we didn't have money for a dining room table. And so we thought, well, maybe someone will get rid of a table. It'll be on the curb and we'll grab that and that'll be our table. We've done that a number of times. Maybe there'll be a garage sale and we can pick one up at a discount. That didn't happen. And so the, the other option that was available to us was to build one. Now, I'd never built a table before, but thanks to the modern miracle of YouTube, I watched some tutorials, I got out the power tools, and I set out to build a table. And as you can imagine, the first thing you do when you build a table is you're going to draw up your plan. And you have to make decisions about the dimensions of the table. How long is it going to be? How wide is it going to be? How tall is it going to be? Because all this goes into what lumber you choose and how long your cuts are, right? So, so as I'm, I'm planning for the table and we're asking this question, how big is it going to be? The number one driver... And answering that question is, well, how many people do we want to be able to sit around the table? If it's, just going to be, if it's just going to be my wife and I eating in the breakfast nook, we don't need a very big table. But if we're going to add our four kids to it, it needs to be a bigger table. And if we're going to invite extended family in for Thanksgiving, it has to be bigger still. We had some friends over the other night, and, uh, and we had set the table, and we had just enough chairs and just enough space around the table to match the number of people we had invited. And then one of the couples brought a last-minute guest. And so all of a sudden, our table wasn't big enough anymore. I realized all of a sudden, man, our table isn't big enough to accommodate the company that we've invited. We've got to build a bigger table. And that's the question that we have to ask. How big are we going to allow our table to be? How much room will we provide for the fallen and broken to move into our life? How much margin are we going to create so that we can accommodate people and show them the hesed, the loving kindness of God? I've mentioned before that for several years, uh, my wife and I lived in New York City. And we lived in a neighborhood called East Harlem or Spanish Harlem. It doesn't look a lot like the Woodlands. But if you live here, you're on public transit all the time. And so you're never really insulated from neighbors like we are here in Houston, always in our car. And so you're shoulder to shoulder with, with uh, anyone and everyone you can imagine. And you kind of pick up a sixth sense when you live there because you're constantly... Uh, in, in encountering people who are drug addicted or chronically homeless or drunk or mentally ill. And so it, if you're a visitor there, it can be really uncomfortable. And, and eventually you kind of pick up and you learn how to operate. So I'm getting off the subway at 103rd Street in Lexington, which was our, our subway stop at the bottom of the hill you saw there. And I'm walking up the hill towards our apartment and I see a woman at the intersection. And I know, I just know that she is going to ask me for something. I can tell. And so as I'm walking up the hill, I start to run through the scenario and decide, what am I going to do? How am I going to respond? Am I going to pretend I don't see her and pretend I don't hear her when she talks to me and keep walking? That's what most New Yorkers do. I had done that plenty of times. Am I going to get out a dollar and give it to her and keep going so I'm not slowed down? Or am I going to stop and engage with her? On this particular occasion, I decided I'm going to stop and I'm going to engage with this woman. And so as I get closer, she kind of steps out in front of me and blocks my path. And my suspicion is confirmed. She wants to talk. And so she says, sir, can I have a dollar? And I said, I don't have a dollar to give you, but is there something else I can do for you? And she says, well, I just need a dollar. And I, so I repeated myself. I said, ma'am, I don't have a dollar to give you, but I would love to help you if I can. You know, what do you need? Are you housed? Are you hungry? Um, you know, if you tell me what you need, I would love to serve you if I can. And she looked kind of dumbfounded, like she, she'd never been asked this question before. And so after a long pause, 
she said, well, can you pray for me? And now I'm dumbfounded because no one's ever said this to me before. <laughs> I've talked to dozens, maybe hundreds of people in New York, and no one's ever asked me that question. And so I asked her her name. She said, I'm Jacqueline. I said, Jacqueline, I, I would be very happy to pray for you. What can I pray for you about? And when I asked that question, her countenance changed. She took a step towards me, put her hands around me, put her head on my shoulder and began to weep. And between sobs, she explained to me that she was addicted to heroin. She was a single mom, had a young teenage son at home. He was addicted to heroin too. Dad wasn't around. She didn't have a job. She was feeling crushed by the weight of despair in her life and didn't know what to do. And so I prayed for Jacqueline as best I could. Now, I had zero experience praying openly in public on a New York City intersection for a heroin-addicted woman who's hugging me and crying on my shoulder. And so I'm pretty awkward. I have no idea what I prayed for her, but I did my best. I said amen, and then I gave her my, my business card, and I said, you know, Jacqueline, I'm part of a church here in the city. We would love to be friends with you. We would love to help you if we can. You know, please reach out to me. Let me know what you need. Uh, if we can connect you to resources for you and your son, we would love to do that. And, and I live in the neighborhood, and so I'm here for you. Um, and then I went on back to my apartment, and I sat down, and I wept because I felt deep conviction of the Holy Spirit speaking to me and saying, Christian, you've lived here for four years and you have only a small handful of these kind of stories. How many Jacqueline's have I put on the periphery of your life? And because you were unwilling to make room at your table, unwilling to create margin in your life and seek out an opportunity to show my kindness to them, they have not been prayed for, they've not been ministered to, they've not been reassured in person that there's care in the universe and his name is Jesus. How many Jacqueline's have I put in the periphery of your life that have never been attended to? I just wept. And I lived there for, for another year or so, and I can tell you I have a couple of stories like this, but not many. And I just wonder today, how many stories would I have in my life like this of God doing profound things and touching people's hearts if I was willing to build a bigger table and seek out an opportunity to show kindness to people for the sake of God? How much space will we create? In conclusion, the hope of our world is not acts of kindness. The hope of our world is not a more gentle or genuine or generous humanity. All those things would be helpful and it would make our world a better place, but it is not our hope. Our hope is certainly not a CEO or entrepreneur bringing invention and innovation to make our lives better. Jeff Bezos and Amazon is not going to fix our world because he can figure out how to deliver groceries to our front door with a drone. That's not our hope. There's no president or politician who's going to be able to inject capital into our economy that's going to fix what's broken. That's not our hope. The hope of the world is the kindness of God entering into it through Jesus who came to save and reconcile a fallen and broken humanity to himself. He sought an opportunity to show the hesed of God, the kindness of God, and made room at his table so that paupers and ragamuffins like you and like me could join him there and be treated as sons of the king. The son of God was treated like a sinner so that sinners could be treated like sons. That's the hope of our world. This story models for us how we can incarnate, how we can put into practice the loving kindness of God, just as David did towards Mephibosheth. And we should follow that example. We should absolutely do that. But that's not the primary point of this story. Ultimately, this story exists to direct us and point us to the way that God incarnated his loving kindness through Christ 
David is not the perfect model of God's compassion and love. He just showed us that a better king was coming. He gave, he gave us a foretaste of what God was going to do. This story simply points us to the truer and better David, Jesus. Jesus, who sought an opportunity to show the kindness of God to us sinners, the condemned, the fallen and broken, like Mephibosheth, and to bring us, who like Mephibosheth, were natural enemies of God, to his table to be treated as sons. This is the transformative truth of this passage, and it's what, it's what the passage seeks to, to reveal to us. So what's the call and response to this? If you've never embraced God's kindness to you, you don't have a relationship with God, then the call for you is to do that today by placing your trust in Jesus and acknowledging him as the truer and better king who's come to rescue you. It would be so sad if this story of Mephibosheth ended with David offering him a seat at the table as a son and Mephibosheth saying, no thanks. I have no interest in that. I'm going to head back over here. That would be such a sad ending. So today, know that God is offering a seat at the table for you. He wants to regard you as a son and daughter. So embrace that. Accept that invitation. If you've already done that, you're a follower of Jesus. The call is to proclaim the gospel of salvation through Jesus and demonstrate the truth of that gospel through seeking out opportunities to show the kindness of God, to serve people in a way that honors God both in word and in deed. Gospel proclamation and gospel demonstration holding out the message of Christ and the mercy of Christ. This is what's been done for us. This is what we see in the life of David. And we have an opportunity to live like a good king by doing this in our own lives. Let me pray for us as we close. Father, thank you that while we were sinners, you loved us and you came for us. Jesus, thank you for deferring to and honoring the Father and in obedience to him to come and take on flesh, to dwell amongst us, to suffer with us, to understand what it is to live as a mortal person and that by your love you were willing to give up your own life so that we could be rescued from this body of flesh and from the prospect and certainty of death. Jesus, thank you for securing for us eternal hope and eternal future, living as sons and daughters gathered around the table of God. God, as we continue to worship and then as we move out from this place, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, give us courage and power to live as those who know the transforming power of your love, that we would be able to remind people in the margins of our lives who need to who need to know that there is care in the universe and that his name is Jesus. Would you equip us and empower us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.